Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk MedTech, the premier podcast for the medical device and diagnostic industry. My name is Omar Ford, and I'm host of this episode of Let's Talk MedTech. I'm also editor-in-chief of MDDI, an online publication owned by Informa that covers the medical device and diagnostic space. Biomed device Silicon Valley is upon us, and today we're going to be talking with one of the keynote speakers, Serbi Sarna. Serbi is an engineer, entrepreneur, and partner at Y Combinator, and she was the CEO and founder of Envision, a company that was acquired by Boston Scientific back in 2018 when Boston Scientific was going through an acquisition spree. Serbia is going to delve into her lifelong journey into med tech and tease her keynote at Biomed Device Silicon Valley. It's an excellent conversation and I can't wait for you to hear it. So, without further ado, let's talk med tech with Serbi Sarna. Well, Serbi, welcome to Let's Talk Med Tech. Thanks for coming on to the show. It's really my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me here. Now, I know you're the keynote speaker at Biomed Device Silicon Valley, correct? That's correct. And I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, I want to talk all about that. I want to talk about that in your company, Envision, and the Boston Scientific Acquisition. But you've got an interesting journey into med tech that I want to uh, discuss first. And, and this started when you were 13, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, I um, I actually, I was in high school and kind of had an affinity towards my English classes a little bit more. You know, I always enjo- enjoyed science and I would spend my recess um, collecting insects, but, you know, really wasn't thinking about what I was going to do long-term for a job or, you know, for the rest of my life for that matter. Uh, And like you said, I was 13 years old writing a paper on Emerson in my bedroom when I felt such a sharp pang of pain in my side that I could barely make it to my mom who was at the kitchen uh, at the time and say that my side hurts before blacking out. And the next thing I remember is waking up in the hospital. And of course, there was no way for me to know it then, but it was going to be the first of many trips. What happened after that? I mean, you had many trips. Um... Yeah, you know, it that evening at the hospital, um, at first they thought that I had appendicitis. And so they actually completed prepping me for surgery. Uh, luckily last minute, the the surgeon himself realized that it wasn't appendicitis and I was suffering from something else. Uh, and later that week they had me come back from an ultrasound and that's when they discovered that I was suffering from a repeat complex ovarian cyst. Um, the problem, you know, still today remains with complex ovarian cysts. Uh, why they call them complex is because they have a septum or the, a divider in the middle of them, and they're both fluid-filled and solid. And in that case, the ultrasound is just telling you that there is a mass, not necessarily whether or not it's cancerous. So the next thing we had to turn to from there was a blood test called CA-125. And that blood test, unfortunately, is no better than flipping a coin, both in terms of sensitivity and specificity. In fact, it has such a high false positive rate that Kaiser will no longer administer it uh, to patients who are premenopausal for risk of 
you know, inadvertently removing the anatomy when in fact there was no cancer present. So I did take this, uh, this test, CA-125, and it was elevated, and I had this complex mass. So what do you do at that point? Well, the guidelines till today say don't biopsy because an ovarian mass biopsy is quite risky in that once you place a needle into the mass as you withdraw, there is a risk of spreading cancerous cells into the rest of the cavity. Uh, Also, and I've heard this story many times in young women, if you are doing surgery and the, and the ovary is injured at all, or it's uh, contorted in a certain way, you will end up having the entire ovary along with the mass removed, you know? So you'll have one ovary instead of two starting at a very young age. So at that point, uh, you know, my family and I were faced with a choice, if you can even call it that. Yeah. Do we risk this invasive surgery and spreading one of the most lethal cancers impacting women, uh, or in, instead do we play this waiting game, this watchful waiting game, to see whether or not this mass was in fact cancerous? And that wait, you know, I've I've had to wait for results before for for various things, and I've talked a little bit about that on previous episodes of Let's Talk Med Tech. But that weight and just thinking and, you know, just imagining the what ifs or the possibilities, that has got to be pretty hard or pretty difficult. You know, it was. And I think that many of us uh, found um, high school to be complex enough uh, without that. Right. And um, I clearly remember being in Spanish class one day and then being in so much pain that I had to leave. And the Spanish teacher then trying to explain in Spanish to the rest of the class that I had this mass on my ovary. And then a high school boy running up to me later and saying, Hey, I heard that your ovary burst, you know, Mm. lost in translation. Um, So yeah, absolutely. You know, playing that waiting game out and now being a parent myself, I can't imagine what it was like for, for my parents. Uh, But even for me as a kid, it was, quite a difficult several months, um, not knowing what to expect. And that kind of propelled you into to med tech, into becoming the the impatient entrepreneur, right? I know you've been dubbed as, as that before. Yeah, that's right. You know, and fast forward six months, it turns out that I was one of the lucky ones. And I, in fact, um, did have a benign cyst, with which was resolved um, and sort of a a painful burst, but it in fact was not cancer. But at that point in time, you know, I had some really fantastic science teachers who spent a lot of their after school hours as a kid, not understanding, hey, adults and teachers have lives too, and that meant something, Um, but who spent their time with me after school, helping me understand what I was going through, you know, that turned some of that anger and confusion into intellectual curiosity and kind of walked me through various papers so I could understand my disease state. And one thing that was apparent actually wasn't in the literature itself, but it was the lack of literature. And it was this lack of basic understanding of diseases which impact women. And so I realized then, or I had a dream, I should say the dream started, that I would one day start a company that positively impacted women's health, starting with the early detection of ovarian cancer. 
And I actually put that in my personal statement uh, to the UCs. And uh, UC Berkeley read it and um, decided to overlook one quarter of mediocre grades that I had because I was dealing with all of this health stuff, you know. Uh, so from high school, went to UC Berkeley, studied molecular and cell biology, did research in bioengineering. Um, and basically any everything I did after that health scare, you know, to my first job at Avid Vascular, to the next device startup I worked on, I always thought what I'm working on right now, how does this apply to women's health? How can this innovation make women's health better, be in a better place than it is today? So that was really what got me started on this journey. Now, I want to talk a, a bit about Envision. And first of all, you founded it in, in 2011, if I recall um, uh, correctly. And that was perhaps a, a strain year for venture capital funding for MedTech. Um, what was kind of the feeling back then when when you were starting this up? And, and how was the, the economy, the environment? You know, that's one thing now doing a lot of software investing myself, you know, in addition to sort of the med tech and biotech work that I do. Um, it's kind of more evident to me that there's never really a great time to try <laughs> to fundraise in medical devices. You know, um, that being said, I do think there are worse times. And um, coming out of, you know, that 2009, 2010 era um, everything had so severely contracted. And, you know, right now, even you're seeing some uh, major contracting of the public markets as it concerns medical devices. Um, and that trickles down into the venture funding, of course, you know, so it was already an incredibly difficult climate to raise money generally, uh, and even harder in medical devices and even harder in women's health. I like to believe that women's health is going through a bit of a renaissance right now. You know, mm -hmm. I talked to many investors who are specifically looking to do in a deal in this, in this space, or they understand how on top the market is and how much potential there is uh, for improvement. Um, back then, VCs were still calling women's health, you know, bikini medicine and that sort of thing. Oh, wow. Or the, the, uh, the amount of times that I, that I heard that it was a, a niche market, that women's health, not ovarian cancer, but women's health women's was health. a niche market. Um, you know, we do make up more than half the population. Uh, <laughs> so that was uh, that was what it was like to go out and uh, try to raise um, venture capital. Do, do you and, think, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. I'm sorry. No, I, I was gonna break in and interrupt. And, and that's interesting that you say that, uh, you know, I've heard that a couple times, too, about women's health, it being called a niche market. Do you think part of the, the issue is that there are not enough women in these positions as I don't want to say stakeholders, but I'd rather say in, in leadership and and. and key and KOLs to, to kind of guide and shepherd this technology through. Yeah, I mean, we're talking more than 10 years ago now. Um, and at that time, it was uh, quite male dominated, you know, yeah. and I so I think it's a it's a couple of different things. It's kind of having most people in industry in our industry and leadership positions 
be men, you know, certainly back then, but also looking at the makeup of venture capitalists back then, in addition to kind of engineers who would go into the space. Um, And, you know, generally, it's not necessarily a malicious thing. You know, people like investing in and hanging out with people and problems that they can relate to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so does that mean that they miss out on opportunities by not being open-minded? You know, of course it does, but it's kind of natural to gravitate towards a problem that you might face one day. Um, And so I think that we are battling against this. Now, when it comes to KOLs, at least in the field of women's health, there are many, many more female residents in uh, gynecology than male residents. So I do think that we have, you know, good representation sort of in that cohort, but historically not even that was true. I mean, if you look at past presidents of these big medical associations, um, you know, ACOG, AAGL, uh, that focused around gynecologists, even then so many of the presidents are men, you know? So hopefully we're turning a corner, but that's certainly at least part of the issue. Yeah, I can remember a a conversation. I had an interview, I won't say any names, but it was a male CEO of a company and they were talking about uh, breast cancer and he was describing just the, the, the dense breast and the tissue and I can remember me thinking, wow, this he, he's talking about this and, and he's an expert on this, but this would be more powerful from a woman coming because he was speaking from a woman's perspective, saying this is what women go through. This is what's happening. And and I, I just thought it would be much stronger if if a woman had said that, because, I, I, I you know, it, it I think sometimes um other people can understand your story, of course, but I think women really have to be in positions where they can talk about their health and they can be in those leadership positions to discuss it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more than that. You know, it's not, it's, it, there's nothing like hearing from the people directly who are, uh, you know, dealing with whatever issue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the kinds of technology that Envision developed and what kinds of clearances or approvals did you have? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, after I um, decided to start the company, I wanted to see what had been done in ovarian cancer. And that was sort of a quick read. Not much success there, uh, at least on the diagnostic side of things. Um, So then I decided to sort of expand my search out and think about more globally, how have we as a society made the biggest impacts on the cancers that we have made an impact on? Cervical cancer, breast cancer, uh, colon cancer, uh, breast cancer from a diagnostic perspective. And there seems to be a recurring theme that whenever there is sort of a breakthrough scientifically on the diagnostic end, it happens when we're able to access the source of the anatomy, the source of the cancer itself, and navigate whatever anatomy we need to to get there. And um, along the, uh, about the time that I was doing this research, a paper came out um, from Dr. Vogelstein's lab out of Johns Hopkins, which said that they believe that the vast majority majority of serious epithelial ovarian cancers or the most lethal and common form of ovarian cancer actually is a misnomer because it doesn't begin in the ovary at all. 
Instead, it starts at the fimbriated end or the most distal end of the fallopian tube. Um, so the part that is furthest into the body. And that makes a lot of sense because that, that fimbriated end, they're finger-like extensions that connect with the ovary. And part of their job is to grab an egg from the ovary and bring it through the fallopian tubes down into the uterus. So it's undergoing sort of a ton of cellular turnover, that particular area. And, you know, I thought to myself, well, if it's not the ovary itself, if it starts in the fallopian tube, there must be a way to access it. And so I started doing more and more research and I found that, you know, there were other devices that attempted to go into the fallopian tube, but they were very uh, fertility focused. There were what they called falloposcopes before, which were endoscopes that entered the fallopian tube, just the proximal end to look for blockages, blockages being one of the leading causes of infertility in women. And then also they would access the fallopian tube um, back then, this product is no longer available on market, but to leave an insert in the fallopian tube, which caused uh, sterility as a form of birth control. And none of these devices, though they did attempt to get clearance, um, could access the full length of the fallopian tube because the full length of the fallopian tube is an extremely challenging anatomy to na navigate. Not only is it extremely tortuous, but it lacks tactile feedback. It, it feels like a wet paper towel. So you could be up against the inner wall of the fallopian tube with the catheter, be trying to push through as you navigate. And because that wall doesn't have any of that feedback, you could tear right through it. So for all of those reasons, um, no one had really you know, access the full length of the fallopian tube, or at least had gotten FDA clearance for it. Uh, around that time, I came across a technology that had already been invented, but not utilized the way we wanted to utilize it, and not down to the size. And that was called linear averting balloon uh, technology. And we needed something where the outer diameter was no, no larger than a millimeter. So we're talking about extremely tiny. And uh, I thought, okay, this has existed in the cardiovascular space or in other spaces before, but no one has tried to texture the outside of this balloon to make it so cells adhere to the outside of it. You know, so the first thing I tried was taking some of this material and just rubbing it on um, uh, some meat that we brought in the grocery store and then to see if it could actually pick up cells on the outside and it could. And so from there, we started this really long road, um, into, you know, testing, uh, and uh, finally clinical, uh, trials of the device. And we were the first device after 80 patients worth of data that was given clearance by the FDA to access the full length of the fallopian tube, but also to collect a cell sample that could then be analyzed um, for malignant features. Wow, that's amazing. 
That's amazing. And, and I take it that that was very attractive to Boston Scientific. And I want to jump in really quickly and talk about the sale to Boston Sci. Um, that was during the time when Boston uh, Scientific was on a was on a, a M&A shopping spree in 2018. They were just buying tons of companies. Um, what were your feelings uh, when the company when Boston Sci came knocking uh, on your door? You know, there was definitely a lot of surprise and they didn't actually, I, I didn't really engage with strategics too much. So even I, after I got the clearance, I raised another round of funding, this time to complete a clinical study in patients who were sus suspected to have um, ovarian cancer. And they were about to undergo a surgery to get their fallopian tubes removed. Mm -hmm. So you know, right before that surgery, we would go in, we would collect a cell sample, and then we could hold ourselves to the absolute highest bar. We could compare the cell sample that we got to actually actual pathological slices of the uh, fallopian tube and see how much concordance we had between the two. So I think that Boston Scientific actually became interested when we demonstrated that every time that there was cancer present in the fallopian tube, we were able to pick it up in our cytology. Yeah, so that was actually after clearance. And at that point in time, you know, we had half the amount of money that we raised left in the bank. And I really wasn't thinking that there would be any strategics interested. And Boston Scientific actually wasn't the first to the table. There was another large med tech who first approached me wanting to learn more and then Boston Scientific and a couple of others. And it was really unbelievable to go from this place of, struggling. I mean, it took me more than a year to raise our first $500,000 for the company uh, to all of a sudden having these large strategics who just knew the space and the need so well, wanting to do more and more diligence about the opportunity. So uh, it was a really special, um, it was a really special time, you know, to be talking to uh, so many different area experts. Was it, was it difficult to, to part with the company, I mean, I've often felt, I've often wondered how that might feel. Was it was it hard to to kind of let it go to to sell it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's to this day, it's one of the most difficult um, decisions I've ever made, to be frank. Mm -hmm. And you know, at some point, um, it became just incredibly difficult to say no. Right, we had only raised seventeen million in venture capital, so when the deal potential went up to you know two hundred seventy five million. And you look at sort of that multiple on return, it became different from as difficult from sort of a fiduciary uh, standpoint, certainly. But, you know, I also remembered why I started the company and I started the company specifically as a patient to serve patients. And I knew the road ahead of me having to go through the reimbursement process, get your own CPT code and then build out an entire sales force. And I just thought if a company that has as strong of a culture as Boston Scientific does with the type of expertise that they do, you know, won't this accelerate um, the product getting into the hands of physicians and therefore benefiting patients, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, our investors, it was patients, and then it was certainly the employees and understanding, you know, what some of them particularly were going through, Um and kind of what their dreams and aspirations were. So at some point, it just kind of made sense to me, and it clicked that this was the right this is the right way forward. Yeah. You, you said something very interesting in there that I just want to point out for every entrepreneur, everybody, every startup, a reimbursement 
think about reimbursement. Say it one more time for the crowd in the back. Reimbursement. That is so important. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting to me. It's sort of one of those things where you have to be eyes wide open and, you know, just needing your own CPT code shouldn't be the kiss of death because otherwise we're sort of giving a kiss of death to to all true innovation in mm-hmm. our industry because if a code exists, especially with you know how particularly they write the codes now um, and how specific they make them even though they shouldn't be, uh, that means there's something like it that has been done. You know, so if we're going to go into the realm of truly new, then it it it's good to know that, look, you know, this is what the reimbursement path is going to take instead of being so consumed only by what the FDA is expecting. If you could give any advice to an entrepreneur right now, especially in today's um, economic climate, uh, what would you tell them? What piece of advice would you give them? Yeah, I would say, you know, break down the device that you're trying to create into kind of its core functionality. So to give you an example, my device had to enter the fallopian tube and collect cells to look at for cancer. And so the two main things it had to do was navigate the fallopian tube and collect cells. And right now, the funding environment is so difficult that if you can break down what the different technical milestones are, of whatever device you're building and then do proof of concept in a more piecemeal way, it'll kind of give you comfort that you're barking up to the right tree, but investors as well, you know? Um, The other thing I would say in terms of FDA path, always try to do the initial searches yourself without hiring somebody in terms of what your FDA path might be. There's actually a wealth of information on the FDA's website. And that way, when you are hiring someone and having discussions, you're coming from a place of knowledge, you know? So I would just um, put the hours into the FDA website, understand kind of what the guidance documents are saying, what other devices in the field have done, uh, what the clinical studies look like as well, so that you're having an informed discussion with whatever uh, regulatory consultant that you pick. And finally, you know, as we already touched upon, I think thinking about reimbursement very early so that you're able to make a clear argument as to why the device is worth doing, you know, how worth spending the R&D money on because this is the business model for it long term. It's just so critical to the success of any device. Okay, now I have to ask you this, uh, and I know if I don't, I'll get in so much trouble from Selena and Adrian, but can you tease the keynote a bit? Uh, We've talked about everything except your keynote at Biomed Device Silicon Valley. Can you give us a hint of what we're in store for? And, And what do you hope attendees will get from your session, from your speech? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to be talking about this story, but in much more depth and kind of some of the techniques I use to overcome those hurdles. You know, um, right now in this, you might have heard that, yeah, fundraising was hard. Uh, but then how did I convince, convince investors? And when I say hard, how hard was it? You know, what were the things I actually ha- had to go through? Um, And then the same thing was sort of hiring a team and what the best parts of this journey were, you know? Um, So I think that it's, uh, it's going to be a really fun conversation. I'm really looking forward to seeing everyone there. 
Yes, and we look forward to hearing uh, it too as well. Well, Serby, thanks for coming on to Let's Talk MedTech. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, and I appreciate yours. Thank you so much again for having me. That's it for this episode of Let's Talk MedTech. Thanks once again to our guest, Serby Sarna of Y Combinator. And if you love this content, if you love this podcast and you want to find more episodes of Let's Talk MedTech, please be sure to visit us at mddionline.com. Yes, that's mddionline.com. You can find episodes of past episodes of Let's Talk MedTech, and you can also find other content related to the medical device and diagnostic industry. And finally, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.